People have said that next to the decision to follow Christ, marriage is the biggest decision you'll ever make in life. I tend to agree. It's the most important, most far-reaching decision you'll ever make. And yet when it comes to that decision, people, young people in particular, often seem left in the dark as to how to make that decision. Their whole focus tends to gravitate towards one dominating question. What is God's perfect will for me? Or better yet, we might say, who is God's perfect will for me? And this becomes a whole discussion in light of their theology and what they believe about the sovereignty of God reigning over all things, believing that God directs our steps, He guides our way, that He has good things for us. We tend to focus on just that, you know, who is it that God would have me marry? But in reality, there are a whole host of questions we should be asking when we approach this kind of decision, aren't there? There are a whole host of questions that we need to be evaluating, and so it really, it sort of brings up, uh, I guess, the discussion of how would you counsel someone? What exactly would you say to them if they're wrestling through that decision, and why would you say it? Where would you get that kind of counsel from? Well, today we come to a passage of Scripture that I think addresses many of those questions, not necessarily the who, but more the other questions. Questions like, when should I get married? Or really, if. Questions of whether or not you should get married. The kind of things you should be assessing and examining in your life. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're looking today at the second half of this chapter in verses 25 through 40, as Paul's really addressing a number of people in the chapter, excuse me, a number of people in this church who are wrestling with the question of whether or not they should marry. Pretty basic, pretty fundamental for most of us who've gone through life, this, this big question of, should I marry or should I not? This group of people that Paul's speaking to here, just a few words about how they would have arrived at the place where they are as Paul's writing to them. Marriage in the ancient Roman world, like many of the ancient cultures, was was arranged by parents, particularly by the parents of the bride. The early church appeared to follow that more than the Jewish pattern. They followed the Roman society around them. That is to say, ideas of romance or infatuated love that sometimes drive our marriage decisions today were more muted, more subtle in these days, and primary was the arrangement of the young lady's spouse, or betrothal partner at least, which often involved a substantial dowry. By the way, it's the often forgotten element for those who want to resurrect arranged marriages, right? So you young ladies, the next time your dad begins to talk to you about the virtues of arranging marriage, you enter into negotiation. You want to find out how much he's willing to pay for that right. Well, these guys would have entered into contracts. They would have had contracts that specified not only the marriage promise that was there, they would have specified all kinds of details, including the amount of the dowry that was set for this wedding. And in some cases, these contracts would have been set very early. We have records of, of marriage or betrothal contracts being set for girls as early as seven years old. And so these men would have been in these contracts for years. Uh, most of the girls would marry at age 13 or 14. The typical age for marriage in Roman society was between 14 and 18 for young men. And so here they are in these betrothal contracts as, as uh, uh, they're reaching the age to, to uh, consummate those contracts, and they are wrestling now with the decision of whether or not to do that. Some of them maybe have come to trust Christ in, uh, since the time their contract was first signed. Some of them maybe were Christians and are now maturing in their faith, and they're wrestling through what to do in their in their betrothal relationship, what to do in their marriage or their proposal for marriage. This is exactly what Paul comes to address. As a matter of fact, you'll see this word 
betrothed, if you have an ESV Bible particularly, you'll see it repeated from verse 25 through 40, six times. Paul speaks about the betrothed, the betrothed, the betrothed. And there are, this is really uh, from time to time been disputed who exactly he's talking to in this chapter. There have been some who have suggested that the ones who are being addressed aren't necessarily the betrothed young men as much as it is the fathers of these daughters. They say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the word betrothed itself is not terribly specific. It's the word parthenos, which really literally is the word virgin. And it can be taken to mean a number of different things in different contexts. The New American Standard, if you have that Bible, you'll see in a couple of places supplies the word daughters. It says the virgin daughters, but you'll notice daughters italicized because it's not in the Greek. So some people just think because there's some some, uh, non-specificity to the word that that might actually be what's in the context here. Secondly, because there is sometimes Paul uses this in a possessive sense. He speaks about his betrothed or your betrothed or your virgin, his virgin, and they think that that kind of of uh, possessive language is more fitting for a father who may still have authority over the marriage of his daughter more so than her her promised husband of the future. Well, there are, however, numerous instances in the romantic poetry of the day of a beloved, a betrothed man speaking of his future wife as my virgin or his virgin. That's not unusual at all. Thirdly, they might say that down in verse 36, there's a word that appears to be in the passive sense when he says there at the end, let them marry. It's not actually passive in the Greek. It's an active verb, but uh, but has sort of a causative form that caused some people to think it has a passive sense. That's not really probably the best explanation. As recent studies have shown, it's probably an intransitive verb, just simply a command, get married. Not necessarily any command to fathers. Plus, the whole reasoning in the verse doesn't make sense if you're speaking to a father because one of the reasons Paul even gives that command at the end of verse 36, one of the reasons he says that people should get married, you'll notice right there in verse 36, is because their passions are too strong. Not really fitting for a father. New American Standard puts, if she's past her youth, trying to make it fit with the idea of fathers of these virgins, but it's a masculine adjective, not a feminine adjective. It's speaking about young men, not about young women. And so it's really better just to sort of sort of lay a foundation for us as we enter in this chapter. It's really better to follow what virtually every other modern translation of, the, uh, of this passage does, which is to look at this as a reference to young men who are in these betrothal contracts. And it's these young men to whom Paul's writing. They're wrestling with the decision of whether or not to follow through on their commitment. And maybe they're wrestling with it because remember back in the very first verse of this chapter, they had sort of there's some people in the congregation who were espousing this idea that it's better to be single, that it's more spiritual to be single. They said it in a letter to the Apostle Paul. They said uh, it's better for a man or it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they were promoting this idea that somehow that's more spiritual. Or maybe some people would have been wrestling with even Paul's own statements about how he himself was single and how he would recommend that for some people. Or maybe it's just the fact that they had written a specific question to Paul about these betrothal contracts. In fact, you'll notice there in verse 25, it begins, as we saw back in verse 1, with the words, now concerning. And remember, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians. As you move through the book, you see this over and over again in chapter 7, verse 1, in chapter 8, verse 1, in chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 16. Later on the chapter, it says, now concerning, now concerning. These are all references to a letter that had been written to the Apostle Paul with a number of questions. And so as we come to verse 25, maybe it's a question they had put to him, or maybe it's a combination of all of these things. But for whatever reason, Paul now turns in the remainder of this chapter to speak to young people. 
and to speak to them about the all-important question of whether or not to marry. And how do you make that decision? How do you weigh all of that out? Well, Paul will say in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord. This is not a black and white issue. This is not a very specific issue. I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Or you can go down to verse 40 because he sort of brackets the whole section with a very similar statement. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the spirit of the Lord. Paul's being a bit coy here. We know he has the spirit, right? We know, as he says in verse 25, he's trustworthy. Not only is he a godly man, not only does he have the spirit, but he's writing everything he writes here, not just as his opinion, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it comes to us preeminently, maybe above every other counsel you would take, maybe above every other voice that you would listen to as you're thinking through the decision of marriage, it comes to you as divine counsel on the decision that you have to make. The Holy Spirit giving you principles to sort through this decision. So in verse 26 through 40, what we're going to see, I believe, are five issues that Paul raises to consider in the determination of whether or not to marry. Five issues to consider in determining whether to marry. The first one he mentions in verses 26 through 27 is your present circumstances. Your present circumstances. That is to say, when you approach the issue of marriage, Paul would say to you, you need to take serious consideration of the particular circumstances that you are in. The circumstances that you face now because you will face them in marriage. You need to evaluate the timing and the challenges of life just as much as you do your personal desires for marriage. This is what he says in verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. This word distress is the word for woe. It's translated woe in so many other places of the Bible. And so he's basically saying, look, in light of the present woes that are out there, People have debated for years what this is referring to, and uh, many people have run off and thought that Paul was making some speculative uh, judgment about the imminent return of Christ, that, that somehow he was making this recommendation out of some eschatological perspective, that maybe he thought that the tribulation period was just about to start and Christ was about to return, or... Some people have even suggested that what Paul's talking about is, is maybe the idea that they were in the tribulation and that because they were in the tribulation that Christ would be coming at any moment. All of that really has no, so, no substance in the text. There's nothing in this, in this context that speaks necessarily about tribulational periods and, and uh, those people that often uh, suggest this suggest or they make reference, I should say, to the apostolic disappointment. The idea that somehow Paul was mistaken, that he had some notion of the return of Christ that he was eventually disappointed in, and then eventually later had to reorient and, and uh, repackage in a different form of doctrine of the end times. Well, none of that, like I said, is in the context of this particular passage, there's nothing that would make us think that Paul has tribulational ideas in the formal sense. It seems much better because Paul's not talking about something that may happen in the future. He's talking about something that's present. It's talking about something that's on them right now and something they all would have clearly realized. It needed no explanation. And you just look into the historical record and one of the things that becomes very obvious is that beginning in about 51 AD, there was a massive famine that swept across the entire Roman Empire. If you remember, one of the prophets in the early church even foretold this famine. 
that would be coming. In Acts chapter 11, I believe it is, he told about a famine that would come across the entire world. And it had already taken root by 51 AD. Paul writes this book around late 54 or early 55. And so probably they were already feeling the effects of this great famine. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul would organize a massive offering to be taken up by all the Gentile churches so that he could carry relief to the, to the Jewish believers who were particularly impoverished over in Israel. And he'll make a reference even in chapter 16 of this very book to the fact that he's coming to them to take this offering. And you add on top of that all the extra biblical literature which indicates that about this time there were increasing strains on the entire economic and social system because of this massive famine that had swept across the entire world. There are enormous records that are being unearthed seemingly every year now about the grain shortages and the struggle to get grain imported from Egypt, which was the one place which had not been affected so heavily by this famine. And it was causing all kinds of upheaval socially and, as we said, economically, but even beyond that, politically and we would say even religiously. There was pressure, ethnic pressure, and pretty soon religious pressure. There was an attempt for people to look out for their own, and so there arose shortly after even this book was written a persecution, first of all against Jews and then eventually against Christians. Domitian's persecution would follow later, and in the second half of the first century, if you know your Roman history very well, there would be just massive uh, turnover in the political and economic system. In one single year, there would be three different emperors, all of them assassinated by the next, as the political pressures and economic pressures just ratcheted up. And so as Paul writes to this group of people, they're on the front end of this. They're on the front end of these times. They're feeling the pinch of this famine. They're feeling the pinch of the economic pressures that are coming in against them. And they're probably beginning to feel even the heat of the, of the political and the social and the religious pressures. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that one of the first martyrs in the Christian church would have been a city treasurer, Erastus, from Corinth. There was pressures coming, and these people would have been feeling it. And so Paul's simply telling them, you should significantly take stock of your circumstances. You should take into serious consideration economic pressures, so, pressures and social pressures that might face you. Take into serious consideration the stresses and strains of whatever trials you may be facing right now. And honestly assess, not necessarily whether marriage is right for you, but whether or not right now it's right for you. Not whether or not marriage is the right thing, but is this the right time? In light of their situation, Paul says it's good for a person to remain as I am. It's good for a person to take stock of their situation and maybe forestall marriage. He goes on, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, don't read that and think that there were some people here who were honestly considering divorce because of their difficult circumstances, maybe because of the finances and economics or whatever. This isn't the language of marriage and divorce. This word for free or released, uh, just like the word even for bound, these are not words that are ever used in the context of marriage anywhere else in Scripture. Where they are used frequently is in the context of contracts. This is contractual language. And so what Paul's really saying to them is, if you are, in fact, in one of these betrothal contracts, if you are betrothed, and it only makes sense, that who, that's who he addresses in verse 25. He says, look, if you are in one of these contracts, I know times are tense right now, 
And if you're in one of them, don't seek to be loosed from it necessarily. Or maybe even the economic pressures have brought pressure on some of the, the dowry commitments of these fathers. But on the other hand, if you're not in one of them, he says you might want to think twice before you run out and sign one. You might want to think twice before you run out and find a wife. You may want to take stock of your present circumstances. It's not a sin to get married. In fact, he clarifies that in verse 28. If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. It's not a sin. If you have this agreement, if you've made this promise, you've made this vow, it's not a sin for you to carry it forward as long as you carry it forward in marrying another believer. Paul will specify that later. You just need to consider your present circumstances. Because Paul tells them in verse 28, in light of the situation in Corinth, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you from that. He's not implying that married people have more troubles because they're married. Paul is not... Paul is not diminishing the nature of marriage here. He's not saying that marriage brings troubles from the marriage itself. But what he's saying is, when you're married, the pressures of your troubles are increased. The pressures of your circumstances are increased. You now have to consider the impact of everything, every difficulty, not just for yourself, but for your spouse and even for your children. Paul says it's those concerns from which I'm trying to spare you. So you need to take stock of your present circumstances. Not only that, there's a second issue he brings up in verses 29 through 31. Not just your present circumstances, but the passing nature of this world. The passing nature of the world. He says in verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. He's going to build on the idea of his counsel and judgment in light of these circumstances, and he gives them a series of examples of, of the way we ought to be living, the way we ought to be conducting ourselves in general as Christians. And really the key to understanding everything he says in verses 29 through 31 is found at the very end, down in verse 31, when he says to them those uh, that we should be as those who deal with the world, but have no dealings with it. That second word for dealings with the world really speaks about making the most out of something. And so what Paul's saying is, we shouldn't deal with the world as if, as if this is the most we'll ever get. We shouldn't deal with the world as if this is all that matters. We're not to make the most out of the world in the sense that this is the final end of everything that we're doing. We should not be putting our value in the world or seeing it as more precious than it really is. We should not be more concerned about our bank accounts and our cars and our careers and all of those other things more than we are about our spirit, the spiritual impact of our decisions. Why? Because in verse 31, the present form of this world the present manner of this world, the present way in which the world operates is passing away. It's passing away. This is what he says back in verse 29. When he, this is really what he's talking about when he says the time has grown very short. He's talking about the passing nature of this world. That you might look at life, particularly if you're a young person, you might look at life and you might be thinking about all the decades that are out there in front of you. And what Paul wants you to think about is how quickly they're going to pass. And everything in Scripture urges you, if you're a Christian, to think about life this way. Romans 13, verse 11, Paul says, You know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That is to say, with each waking moment of your life, the return of Christ is closer. And you might wake up tomorrow and He may return. You might wake up tomorrow and everything that you see and touch and feel, everything out there that you thought was so real is suddenly gone. 
psalmist, Psalm 39, lifts up his heart to the Lord. He says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days, that I might know how fleeting I am. You know, this should be your prayer every day you wake up. God, help me to see how fleeting I am. Help me to see what James 4 says, that your life is like a mist that's here and then gone. Like the fog you drove through this morning that's already burned away. It's all your life is. The time is short, Paul says. And so every decision, every decision, even big decisions like marriage, they need to be made in light of that reality. And that ought to be our perspective on the entire world. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul takes this perspective And he basically gives four applications of it in verses 29 through 30, beginning with marriage. He says, first of all, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. In other words, a man should seek to give his devotion and his attention to the Lord as much as a single man. We ought to display to the world that our marriage and our family and our home is not the center of our lives. And that ought to be visible to everyone. That's what Paul's saying. Now that may be a shock to some of you. You might have been trucking through life thinking that that's that's what life is supposed to be. And that's not what it's supposed to be. In fact, our Lord himself said it this way, didn't he? Didn't he say to us, if anyone comes after me or comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he's not worthy of me. And so what Jesus is teaching there, he's simply teaching us that in order to be a follower of Christ, your relationship to Christ has to have primary influence over your life. It has to be the primary relationship of your life above everything else. That is to say, the call on your life to love Christ may put you at times in conflict with those that you're supposed to love most dear. In fact, in fact, to those who think that they love you dearly, it may appear to them at times that you don't love them. It may appear to them, whether it's your father or your mother or your brothers or your sisters, it may appear even to your wife or your husband at times that you hate them. You may be accused of that, Jesus is saying, because your devotion to Christ supersedes everything. He's just saying this needs to be your primary relationship. This needs to be your primary commitment. This needs to be your priority. Your relationship to God. Above father and mother. Above husband and wife. Jesus says even above your own life. You know, there will be people, if you're a follower of Christ, there will be people who look at your life And they will actually think that you're doing something detrimental to yourself. They will look at you as if you hate yourself. When you make decisions based on your commitment and the priority of Christ in your life, and you make decisions such as putting off marriage, and you make decisions such as putting off a career, or not buying this house, or not taking this job, or not doing the things that are driven by what you see in this world, what you touch, and what you can taste. They'll see you making decisions because all they see are the things that they can see, but you're looking at something else. See, you're looking at eternity. You're looking at eternity. That's what Paul's saying. And viewing viewing through the eyes of eternity. Sometimes you're going to have to make decisions that may appear to everyone else to make no sense. They may think you hate yourself. You'd give up that job? 
You'd give up that opportunity. You wouldn't buy that house. I mean, you're going to buy a smaller house. You're going you're to take a lesser job. Say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Because I want to serve the Lord. Because my devotion is to Him. You're going to put off marriage? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You hate yourself? If it means loving Christ, yes, I do. This is what Jesus teaches. This is what Paul is saying here. That above every other relationship, if you are a believer, your devotion is to Christ because of eternity. And not only that, he kind of adds that. He adds another application in verse 30. Those who mourn need to be as those who don't mourn. No longer mourn. Probably said in light of the economic difficulties that they were facing. He says, look, you need to realize that your, your affliction is momentary and light. As he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's momentary and light in light of the eternal weight of glory that it is working in you. This needs to be your perspective. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because, he says, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we, we face all of the downs and we face all the bad times with a certain amount of sobriety and a certain composure about us because we understand that they don't even compare to the wonderful things the Lord has for us. The eternal weight of glory. And by the way, on the flip side, Paul gives a third application, not only in the bad times, but he says those who rejoice ought to be as though they're not rejoicing. That is to say, nothing compares to the joys of the resurrected life that awaits you. You need to realize that. And so, whether it's sorrow or whether it's rejoicing, Paul says you need to have a sober and temperate response. Listen, even the sorrows of this life Or on the other side, even the joys of marriage cannot compare to what the Lord has in store for you. And so you make all of your decisions now based on that eternal reality. You make all of your decisions based on what you know to be God's promises and God's eternal inheritance that He's given to you. You need to realize, therefore, that the bad times are not so bad as to rob you of that internal inheritance, and the good times are not so good as to replace or supersede your eternal joys. Fourthly, Paul says, regard to your possessions. Those who buy need to be as those who had no goods. That is to say, Paul isn't forbidding you from buying things, but he's forbidding you from possessing them. You understand what I'm saying? Buying them as if they belong to you. Realizing that, you know what, you're a steward of what the Lord has entrusted to you. And everything you have comes from Him. And everything you have belongs to Him. See, people don't make decisions this way. People don't make decisions this way. They make their decisions as if what they have is what they have. What they see is what they have. And they become engrossed and absorbed in the things that they have. Jesus told a parable about a man who was uh, uh, experiencing a time of abundance and he made a decision that he's going to build bigger barns to hold all of his stuff. And this is the way people go through life. They're always about accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And Jesus condemned that man. He said, because he had laid up treasure for himself. But he wasn't rich toward God. It was all about him. He laid up treasure for himself. John Calvin says the mind of a Christian ought not to be taken up with earthly things. We ought to live as if we were every moment about to depart from this life. So, you need to look at it that way. You're at best renting something. Because you won't own it for all eternity. It's a temporary investment. If you'll have it 30 years, it's temporary. And you need to realize that. 
Paul instructs Timothy to teach at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Teach, he says, those, quote, rich in this present age. Charge them not to be haughty nor set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share Uh, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's saying to you, look, your life isn't in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is in the way you use them, the way you invest them. And he's saying you need to invest them for the future, that is for eternity. That's the idea here. You understand the passing nature of this world, and so you use your possessions, you use your wealth, you use your buying and your selling to make eternal investments. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16 about a, 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 a dishonest manager, and he had gotten his pink slip, and he was going to be on the street in a few days, and what did he do? He quickly went out, and for all the people who had accounts with his with his boss, he went out and settled with them. If they owed 100, he settled 80. If they owed 50, he settled on 30. He did all of these things. He, uh, the scripture says, in order to take what was the things in his control and make as many friends as possible for the future. Jesus says, it's a shame that the world is sometimes more wise in the way they use material things than we are. You see, you can't be all about hoarding, and you can't be all about accumulating if you have an eternal perspective. The world is better about chasing an investment. The world is better about looking at a return than you are. Because you have in front of you eternal rewards, eternal returns. And yet you don't even know how to invest in them. What a rebuke to our own souls. That we would be so short-minded. That we would be so temporally focused. So Paul says we need to deal with the world as if we had no dealings with it. You need to buy and sell as if you didn't buy and sell. Well, Paul gives a third issue to consider in determining whether to marry not only present circumstances not only the passing nature of this world this temporary fleeting nature but thirdly talks about the preoccupations of marriage he tells them you need to consider carefully before you get married just what kinds of burdens you're adding to your life what kinds of responsibilities you'll now have he says in verse 32 i want you to be free from anxieties that word is it's a word for anxiety in a negative sense when it's used in a negative context, but in a positive context, it is also translated to provide care for someone. And that's really what he's talking about here. I want you to be free from the burden of providing care for your spouse and for your family. That's what he goes on to say. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And it's not just the men. In verse 34, he says to the women, the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And Paul's really talking about not here negative anxiety so much as he is just the regular burdens of caring and providing. And he's saying, I don't want you to be distracted with all the duties of caring for a spouse because this is just the realities of life. It's not as if married people love the Lord any less, it's not as if they're divided in their heart but they are necessarily divided in their time because life brings responsibilities and marriage brings responsibilities. There are some of you and some of us who in our past, because of responsibilities to our family, we had to work two jobs. 
just in order to make enough income to provide for our family. There are some of you who are in jobs now that you have to work an inordinate number of hours, and you do that because you have a responsibility of providing for your family. There are some of you who spend your time doing loads and loads of laundry and and sink full of dishes over and over and over again. They seem to never disappear. Why do you do all that? These are the responsibilities of life. These are just the realities of life. And in the third world, or in the world even that Paul would have written to, when they didn't have the modern conveniences of refrigeration and supermarkets or washing machines, the burdens would have been even greater. The restrictions on your time would have been even more onerous. And so he says, you need to take that into consideration. You need to think about the preoccupations of marriage. You need to realize that whenever you move into that realm of life, your opportunities for serving the Lord in the way that you have them in singleness will not be there. And that just is something you need to consider. It's not that marriage or singleness is intrinsically more spiritual or more righteous He's just simply saying you need to take stock, take stock of the types of care that will be required for a wife or a husband that will necessarily take time away from the other activities you might have used for the Lord. And Paul says, I, don't, I just want you to be free from that. Singleness simply has fewer hindrances, more advantages for serving the Lord in the church, for serving the Lord in the lives of other people, for serving the Lord on the mission field. That, of course, implies that the single person has a godly focus. We know singleness and youth too often are accompanied by self-centeredness and frivolous pursuits. We know that a lot of people are not taking advantage of of their singleness. And we remember that the people that Paul's writing to here are probably between the ages of 13 and 18. And we unfortunately have to see that far too often in our society, people are not using the opportunities that they have in their singleness for anything other than feeding their own selfish desires and frittering away their time on temporal and endless pursuits. But for the spiritually minded young person, for the devoted young person, Paul says, you have incredible opportunity right now. And you need to take stock of whether or not marriage right now is for you. Or whether because of the benefits of eternity, you may want to forestall that decision so that you can make eternal investments with the freedom of your time right now. Paul says, I want you to be undistracted from all those things. In fact, he says, he sort of summarizes down in verse 35. I say all this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying, look, I'm not saying that this is right for everybody. I'm not trying to lay a restraint on everybody. I'm not saying that this is a command. And I don't want to feel, I don't want to make you feel any undue obligation But he says, in the assessment of things in your life, I just want you to think about this. I just want you to consider how undivided devotion to the Lord can be profitable for you right now where you are. Consider the preoccupations of marriage. Not only that, not only the present circumstances, the passing nature of the world, preoccupation of marriage, but fourthly, Paul brings another very serious issue to consideration, and that is the pressure of purity. Pressures of purity. Because at the end of the day, this might really be the determining factor in your decision. Simply the fact that regardless of the opportunities that are in front of you, you cannot be fruitful for the Lord because you are constantly doing battle in your own heart with purity. Or even to say that the pressures and the circumstances that might face you on the outside, as daunting as they may be, may be nothing to the battle going on on the inside for purity in your heart. 
And so Paul says in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, toward his virgin, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. He's saying, look, if you're one of those people who isn't struggling, you've got control over these desires in your heart, you feel no necessity to move forward in marriage because of these desires, great. Take advantage of it. But if when you're together with your beloved, if you, when you're together with your promised, your betrothed, the one you want to marry, if you're together with them, you are no longer acting properly. And he defines what he means by that. If your passions are strong, it has to be. Go ahead and get married. As he says earlier in the chapter, it's better to marry than to burn. It's so unfortunate to see young people put themselves in places of temptation for prolonged periods of time because in the balance of their decision on marriage, they weigh so many other things higher than their personal purity. That is to say, people enter into marriage and in their minds or because of pressure from their parents, they need to start a career and they need to have a certain amount of money in the bank and they need to maybe buy a house or get a car or do all these other things. And those suddenly become the priority in their life and not their purity. And they're playing fast and loose with the temptations that are going on in their heart and they're, they're, they're increasingly moving into places where they are violating their conscience and they're violating the, the integrity and the, even the purity of the person that they love and they're facing these temptations and their pressures and for whatever reason, that's not important to them. Paul says, look, if you're not behaving properly, if you're not behaving properly, because of the pressures of purity, if your passions are too strong, or in contrast in verse 37, if your desires are not under control, it's not wrong. It's not rash. It's not ungodly to marry earlier rather than later. This ought to be one of our major considerations. If we're parents... We ought to be just as concerned about this as we are about their financial security and their career pathway. That we wouldn't put our children in a pathway of temptation that's too great for them. There really aren't rights and wrongs. Paul says there really are two rights. He says in verse 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. There are two good pathways here. If you can forestall marriage because you have your desires under control, if you can forestall marriage and serve the Lord and reap eternal rewards, that's great. And if you can't, you haven't sinned. It's all good, he says. Well, one final issue to consider in determining whether to marry, not just present circumstances, the passing nature of the world, the preoccupations of marriage and the pressures of purity, but Paul says, finally, because of the permanence of marriage, you need to think seriously about this. And he actually shifts here in verse 39 from talking to the young people to talking to widows for whatever reason. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to remarry to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That is to say, your options are limited to those who have a strong profession of faith. That is, those who demonstrate by their character and by their speech their testimony of faith in Christ. I can't tell you the number of people that I know who've made that judgment too quickly. And they have entered into a marriage before they ever saw any substance to the profession of faith of the person they wanted to marry. And they now enter into a lifelong struggle, not just in their marriage, but a struggle now to even serve the Lord. Because now not only do they have the the normal 
challenges of marriage, but now they're bound and they're yoked together with someone who no longer wants to participate in the things of the Lord, no longer wants to seek the Lord, no longer encourages them, no longer wants to give, to serve, to go, to do all the things that are in their hearts as they continue to grow in the Lord. Paul says you need to take serious stock that once you marry, it is for good. It's for life. Till death do you part. You're married, you're bound to this husband or this wife as long as you live. You're free. He says you can marry who you want. But you just need to take serious consideration that there's no turning back once you go down this pathway. And so, in his opinion, verse 40, you'd be happier. Particularly if you're a widow, he thinks you'd be happier in your singleness. He says that's his judgment. And then he adds subtly or sarcastically, and I think I too have the Spirit. I mean, I, I might have something to say on this. I might have some wisdom. Look, if you're going to take anyone's counsel, if you're going to ask anybody's advice, and you should, you should get as much counsel as you could for one of the biggest decisions you'll ever make. Why don't you put right at the top of the list what the Apostle Paul has to say? I think he has the Spirit of God. I hope you do too. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for counsel that you give us in the Word of God for so many important decisions of life. And we realize this morning just how practical and real your counsel is for all who are facing the issues of marriage. Help us who are married with the perspectives that we have to bring this counsel to young people who are in our lives. And for the young people who are here among us, Lord, I pray that they would take serious consideration of all these things. Not just their personal desires for marriage, but their circumstances, the burdens and realities of married life, the eternal realities and opportunities that they have now even in their singleness. And Lord, we pray that you would guide them in wisdom and in counsel to use their singleness or to use their marriage for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.